In September 2015, 25-year-old Gail Newland was sentenced to eight years in prison. The public has been split on this verdict ever since. Was there enough to charge Gail Newland of creating a fake relationship with a friend of hers while disguising herself as a man? Detective Unit, just on top of this video, because I know some people usually skip from this point onto the next timestamp, this story comes with a huge trigger warning. The story contains the theme of sexual assault all throughout. So if this isn't something that you want to listen to, if you're sensitive to this type of topic, just click out. Just click out, watch any other video on this channel, take care of yourselves, don't dive into this one because it's triggering on so many levels. It also contains the topic of attempted suicide. So it is just attempted, but still it might be triggering to some. And usually I put a timestamp on the screen when it comes to the sensitive topics, giving you the option to skip to that next timestamp. But here, for you to understand the story, for you to actually grasp the whole of it, it would only make sense to listen to that part as well. So I won't be doing it here because it is a crucial part for you to understand the rest of the story. So again, if those two topics aren't something that you want to listen to, click the hell out. There are two main reasons why I decided to cover this topic, even though it is extremely controversial, if you know this story. First reason is because I haven't seen it covered the way I am going to do today. Meaning two lenses, covering sort of the timeline of one person's point of view and then of the others. I've only seen those two points of view mashed up, combined, and that doesn't really let you hear the full story and then decide whose story you believe more, which in my mind is the only logical way to tell this type of case. And then the second part is really because I live in the UK and people, like, especially with Susie Lamplu's case, have gotten in touch, sort of giving me more ideas or, like, more context and stuff. So that is sort of my approach here. If there are any lawyers in the audience, if there are any lawyers watching this, or anybody really more, I don't know, apt when it comes to law and, like, more of understanding of the judicial system here in the UK, I really want to understand why more hasn't been shared with the public in terms of court documents, in terms of anything really that happened in trial, in terms of just more evidence. It just isn't available to the public, even the CCTV that is mentioned I couldn't find online. So that being said, the most reliable source for me here in a ton of the scripting was The Guardian. There were some other websites, you know, BBC, like some videos on the case, uh, the Vice article, but pretty much there was one document that I think was a court document, but you know, nothing really official. And that makes this story really easy to get lost in. It also makes you believe what you can trust, what can you trust, and why isn't certain information available to the public, because it would clear so many people's doubts. I'll point it out in the story where, you know, I'm kind of wondering why isn't this looked into or why hasn't this been shared, why hasn't this been exposed, and if anybody is privy to any knowledge that I'm not, because I'm just the girl that looks things on the internet, I don't really have a law background, please let me know. How long was that sentence? Was that all one sentence? 
Let us dive into the story of the day. And here we are going to start with the backgrounds. So backgrounds of the person that was charged, the accused, and then also the background of the victim. Another quick thing, the name of the victim here has been protected, so we will be using the name Chloe, because that is the name that has been given in all of the articles online. So let us first begin with the little, the very few details that we have on Gail Newland, who will be the accused party in this case. So at the time of the first trial, Gail will be 25 years old. But here we're gonna go back into her early teenage years, when she was still living with her family near Cheshire, in this area called Williston. And the few things that we know is that, you know, she started going online, she started creating social media profiles. In particular, at this point, Facebook was huge. In 2003, at the age of 13, she was still on MySpace, and she started creating a fake profile for a person called Kai Fortune. She found this MySpace profile of an American Filipino man, and then she downloaded all of the pictures off of their account in order to create her own, rather, the MySpace account for a guy named Kai Fortune, uploading all of these fake pictures. And this would be the man and the persona that she would make up from that point on. So by 2005, when she would be 15 years old, she then started building Kai's profile on Facebook using the similar imagery and probably all of the recent pictures that the actual American Filipino man has uploaded on his own profile. People would say about these that none of it added up, like it would be really easy to figure out that this person isn't who they say they were. I mean, if you have watched Catfish, you kind of know immediately what people look for, but most of the articles online say that the profile would say this person is in Chester, that Kai is living in Chester, but then all of the pictures online will show like the typical American houses in the background, so it's definitely a clear pattern of like how the houses look here in, you know, small cities in the UK versus what they would look like in the US. I personally haven't been able to find neither the MySpace nor the Facebook fake account, but from this point on, Gail even went a step further in order to really convince who in the end will end up being her target audience that this person is real. She would give them a blogspot page, she would then, after the Facebook profile, even open up a YouTube account, where Kai would supposedly be sharing videos of his street dancing, or clips of himself playing Katy Perry songs on the piano. At this point, it's been at least two years that Gail has been creating this fake persona and all of the accounts to really support that this is the real person. And there might have been multiple reasons. The main one, and this is something that Gail would admit in court to, she will actually admit that she was behind creation of all of the fake accounts, that she was taking all of these pictures and then uploading them onto the fake profiles. So this is something that she wouldn't deny in court either. But the reason that she will admit to as to why she was doing this is because she knew, she knew even though she was in her early teenage years, that she was into girls. However, she wasn't comfortable with her sexuality, so this was her way forward to create a fake account and then start chatting with women 
as high fortune. She would actually say about this that she had gone from primary school, where she was happy, in a mixed one, where all of her best friends were boys, to a completely different environment. She would say that there was a switch, because from that private school she would then go to a school that was an all-girls school. So she went from one environment that was mixed, where all of her best friends were boys, to suddenly going into a completely different environment in an all-girls school. She said, I was completely out of my comfort zone. All my best friends were boys at primary school. Then I went to an all-girls school and was out of my comfort zone. I knew I was attracted to girls, but didn't realize what it meant. I didn't know any gay people. You'd use the word lesbian for name-calling. So as Kai Fortune, she could enter any chat room, she could go on Facebook Messenger and talk to girls, and it didn't feel wrong. She was only herself, but still pretending and disguising as a boy. Here we speed up to year 2009, and this is again where the gap is in the story, nothing is spelled out throughout all of these years, is Gail Newland online as Kai? Is she making sure to, I don't know, stalk Kai's Facebook profile? Did she ensure that he created one in order for her to then take all of the pictures and the videos for YouTube channel, for, you know, the her fake Facebook persona, to basically keep up the act? But we can only presume that that is true, because there will be three other women testifying as witnesses in Gail's trial here, it will tell about how Gail actually chatted with them. There will be this woman that we only know under the initial C that met, quote-unquote, met Kai online two years before Chloe actually started chatting with Gail, pretending to be Kai. So C would say that Kai sent her the Facebook friend request first, she accepted it, and she says she accepted it because, as superficial as it is, Kai was quite good-looking. And she could also see a detailed profile page with a ton of pictures and ton of comments from girls. And obviously Kai would entertain it, you know, you could see that the profile was active. You knew, well, rather you supposed that this would be a real person who is updating the profile quite frequently. And C said that she thought he seemed quite popular especially with girls. But then, you know, after all of the chats, after chatting all of this time, I would always find an excuse as to why they can't meet in person. So at some point, C even responded to Kai, and this would be presented in court, it's times like this, I wish I wasn't in love with a fucking ghost. As you could imagine, that would look quite bad for Gail, as would this next correspondence, because on one occasion, Kai wrote to see, you're not my girlfriend, just leave me the fuck alone. I'm having a breakdown, to which C would reply, if I found out the truth, I'd probably hate you. I'm 100% real, but who are you? I'd like you to take this part where I'm breaking down the witness testimonies with a grain of salt, mostly because I only found them on one source, and that source was Liverpool Echo, this website that has covered this story in quite a few articles, but again, when I see something that hasn't been confirmed anywhere else, I just want to point that out, because 
yet again, here is, you know, the gap that any lawyers or anybody privy to any information that I'm not might be able to fill in as to why we don't really have that much information. But the story about there being other women is confirmed by most sources that the witnesses would testify in court. It just hasn't been broken down like this. So this would be either C or one other witness that would give us a bit more insight into why they would actually continue speaking with Kai, even when they would have any suspicions, even when they would have all of the doubts, why would they really engage in any further conversation? And that is because Kai would always find an emotional hook to really keep them hanging. You know, when he thought that they're kind of getting out of his grasp, they might be suspicious, then something extremely dramatic would happen in Kai's life. So this woman said that, you know, she was suspecting that after some conversations, them exchanging numbers and actually speaking on the phone, always without a video, of course, how Kai had really high-pitched voice. So Kai would say that he was just not blessed with a deep voice. But then she became even more suspicious when Kai supposedly forwarded her naked pictures of a woman who turned out to be a victim of sexual assault. So this witness said that Kai bragged about it on the phone and that he seemed quite smug. This relationship, however, would continue into 2011 and the witness said that Kai would, you know, express love, that it would be the love bombing, telling her how he loves her, how he sees future with her, and how they would eventually end up in a relationship, they will meet each other, you know, it was all the empty promises that you could imagine. So when this woman suggested that they meet up and go on a date, she said she was willing to travel to meet up with them, that is when Kai starts inventing all of the dramatic issues like the issues with social anxiety as the first excuse of why they can't meet up in person. He told this woman that he was taking sleeping pills, that he had been fostered, and that his mom had strangled him as a child, and that is why his voice was so high. So because of this, this particular witness then kind of started growing suspicious. Like, why wouldn't you mention something like this before? if it's real, and if that is why your voice is the way it is, and they slowly started drifting apart. But then, in order to pull this person back in, because now they're out of Kai's grasp, Kai would say that he is seriously ill. That is why. That is why they couldn't actually meet up. He's seriously ill, because he has cancer. This is a trick that other witnesses would also admit that Kai used. So that is from what I gathered from this Liverpool Echo article, at least two out of three women that have mentioned that Kai used the cancer trick, that he used to say that he has cancer when he didn't, because Kai didn't exist to begin with, because it was all Gail just trying to get these women to continue chatting with her. This witness then, after Kai came forward with the cancer story, said that she did feel sorry for him, but that she felt it was a bit off, that he hadn't told her before, just like in any other story. And she thought he was telling the truth, so they started chatting again. And now they actually move this relationship to FaceTime. However, 
the person, Kai, wouldn't actually show their face on FaceTime. So this person was actually calling them out, being like, it's called FaceTime for a reason, show me your face. And again, Kai would say that, you know, he had social anxiety, like, stop pressuring me, you know, I'm, like, anxious and also have cancer on top of that. And then, of course, like, you can't really say much, because you have to understand, like, some people don't really want to, in those circumstances, talk, don't want to show their face, don't want to show what they look, what they're going for. But again, this person still kept having her suspicions. FaceTime was actually the reason why this woman figured out what was going on. Because, according to Liverpool Echo, and that's why I'm telling you, take it with a grain of salt, apparently during one of the FaceTime calls, Kai didn't show his face, but he showed this woman her dog. So, basically, the pattern that you will notice here when it comes to the witnesses and then when it comes to the main story is that Kai does the most in order for you to believe that this is serious, that he trusts you, that basically this relationship is something that he sees going to the next level. So, in these stories, it will still be like familiarizing them with the dog, with a pet, with an actual physical animal that is there close to them. So, of course, then you think, well, if the animal is real, they're there, the whole profile is up to date, why wouldn't this person be real? They just have social anxiety, they just don't want to show their face. So, apparently, during this FaceTime call, basically the dog called Gypsy was there. But then this woman, after the call, was like, hey, I think I've spotted the picture of this dog somewhere. And then she went onto Kai's Facebook, went through her his friends group, which is probably something that she had done before, and then found Gail Newland's actual, real Facebook profile, where Gail's picture is with the same exact dog that she had just seen in that FaceTime call. Now, upon seeing this, this witness decided, well, what is the one legitimate thing that I can do? So, at that point, you could already hide the caller ID on your phone, and that's exactly what she decided to do. She's like, I mean, this would be super dumb if it works, but it might just work. So, she hid the caller ID and then called Kai's phone number, which is the only one she had. She didn't have Gail's. And upon calling, she was like, you know, can I speak with Gail Newland? She basically made herself sound like, I don't know, a telemarketer, somebody calling to sell you shit. And Gail, on the other end of the line, said, speaking. And that is when this person just knew. She called Kai's phone, and Gail was the person answering and admitting that she is the one. So, that is when this person just excluded herself out of the situation and, like, completely stopped communicating. But according to Liverpool Echo, if we are to trust this source, this would be in late 2013, which is when Gail would already have been under investigation for the offenses that we are going to speak about in a couple of minutes that would lead to her trial. So, this is when already the core relationship between Gail and Chloe would have been happening. So, that means that Kai was still chatting with other women on the side, trying to, I don't know, continue any other relationship that they had going on. Again, one source and one source only that had stated this. The way that this woman said that she knew this was because Kai told her that his best friend had fallen in love with him. 
and that he rejected her, and then this made this woman bitter. So this woman had apparently made allegations against Kai, and then that is why they had been to his house. At this point, this woman had already had her suspicions, and then finally cracked the code after that phone call. So this is why that situation had dwindled. Again, if we only had more information, we'd be able to, like, piece the pieces of the puzzle better together as to, like, how many other fake relationships Kai had while he was still chatting with Chloe, you know, the timeline of those, but this is the only thing that we have here. Here, before we move on to Chloe's background and then the main part of this story, there's a couple of points that people usually reflect on online. One is that when Gail Newland created this profile, it would have been, like, early 2000s, and also sort of like the background where she was educated in. When Gail first created Kai, Section 28 was still in its last year of effect. Section 28 was this clause that was introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government that would outlaw any council-funded establishments from promoting sexuality. So this would either be through teachings or just intentionally through, like, any published material. So you kind of have to think, even in the years of the aftermath of Section 28, how Gail would have perceived herself actually coming forward to anybody, whether it would be her friends, her family, literally even anybody online as her real self, under her real identity. But also something that people don't really mention online is that this story then continues into 2010s. It continues beyond that, where other avenues were available, you know, where she could have completely stopped this fake persona, stopped, like, taking pictures, downloading them, all the effort that has to go into creating a fake profile, put that on the side, and he had even tried to process what else can I do. Are there any other sources online, any other forums when I could maybe write if I'm mostly comfortable online, hiding under a different username, hiding under a different identity? Any community groups, any counseling groups? I just want to point out that there were other avenues. Yes, she might have struggled with a bunch of issues that we are going to speak about during trial, whether it was social anxiety, whether it was autism, Asperger's, gender dysphoria. However, at some point, she still is pursuing only one avenue and kind of is completely blinded to any other options that are available. And I just wonder why. Was there a certain fix? Was there something that she was getting by pursuing this particular pathway, and then it just kind of blinded her to everything else. Nothing else really existed because this was her hook, because something was gotten out of this, because she was actually getting something out of trying to, I don't know, swindle all of these women, trying to actually talk to them and fake all of these relationships online. On to Chloe's background, and here we probably know even less, I would say, in terms of, like, the amount of information that we have on Chloe. We know that the first statement that she will make to the police would be on 3rd of July 2013, and at this point, Chloe would be 27 years old. So, she would, by my accounts, be then four years older 
than Gale, because in 2013, Gale was 23. The judge would refer to Chloe's upbringing in trial as difficult. We don't really know what that entailed behind closed doors as she was being brought up, but we know that it would result in Chloe submitting herself to an abusive relationship. She would be dating somebody where there would be some sort of domestic violence. And after that relationship, she started studying at Chester University, which is where eventually she would add Kai on Facebook and then she would meet Gail in our story later on. But this is something to point out because Chloe's previous trauma, any sort of abusive relationship, might have been why she blindly trusted Kai. Why she, unlike all of the other three witnesses, actually didn't see through it. Because suddenly there is this person that is loving and caring. There is no abuse. They are just actually confiding in her. When it comes to all of the traumatic events that Kai will tell Chloe about, it is just them trusting them with that information, just them actually being vulnerable. Chloe would say in trial about this that she knows that it sounds pathetic, but she was just so happy at the time because she was in love with this person and they built this beautiful relationship that wasn't on anything like that. It was just based on our minds and all the other things that we had in common. So she just felt grateful that she finally got into a proper relationship. And people analyzing this case would say that if somebody had had traumatic or abusive relationship in the past, based off of that, they wouldn't have a reliable internal model of what a healthy relationship would look like. So they wouldn't have anything to compare it to, meaning that they won't have anything that would help them recognize when their partner is behaving in unacceptable ways. We now go into the timeline where Chloe would finally cross paths with Gail Newland. And this would be Gail's side of the story. So according to Gail, the two of them didn't actually meet through Facebook. Apparently Kyle's profile still existed, as we will learn throughout this story, but Gail would meet Chloe in a club. Rather, this would be a gay nightclub called Gender Blender. And this nightclub would be organized by the university-run events, so they would have, like, weekly events at it. And from what I have gauged online, it was aimed at mostly gay men, so rather than, like, wider LGBTQ community, it was mostly aimed at gay men and, like, it would have drag shows as well. However, Gail is somehow more comfortable now, even though she still resorts to that online persona and hasn't deleted that profile or anything like that, and she is comfortable enough to at least be at this place on this night in 2011 as she's, you know, studying at Chester University, as she's doing her degree in marketing and creative writing. And this is where she would meet Chloe. According to Gail, the couple, so the two of them, would discuss sexuality-related struggles that they would both be going through, and for the first time ever, Gail would feel comfortable enough to open up about her alter ego, telling Chloe how she used that fake profile, how she used Kai to talk to girls. In The Guardian, it is actually pointed out that as Gail would tell this story on the stand, that she would get more confident. Like, all of her tics and, like, 
all of the nervousness would just go out of her. So I just wanted to note that because I think there is something in that. I'm not sure if she's going more confident here because she's telling the truth or just because she's more comfortable talking about her sexuality and, you know, how she wished it was perceived, how she wished she had gone about it. It's, again, up for you to decide. So, that night, apparently, Chloe asked Gail if she was gay. And Gail said yes and claimed that Chloe told her she was gay too, struggling with her sexual identity. And for the first time, she shared the coping mechanism that she had established up until then, and that was the fake profile of Kai Fortune. So when Kai sent Chloe the Facebook friend request a couple of days after they met in Gender Blender, Chloe was fully aware that this was an alias. She wasn't being duped because she knew that Gail and Kai were two different people. From all of the articles online, I have seen the wording of Kai asking Chloe to be friends on Facebook. So I just wanted to point that out because, yes, it goes into Gail's version of events of the two women meeting up in the club and, you know, then adding each other on Facebook. We'll speak about why the bizarreness of it all in a second but it also would potentially go into Chloe's version of events, which is Gail as Kai following the same old behavior, the same old pattern that she did with so many women online, just adding her without Chloe meeting, without Chloe having met with her in person. So that Facebook ad happened because apparently, according to Gail, Chloe would be more comfortable with having this supposed heterosexual relationship with somebody, at least in her mind, at least through Facebook, by adding Kai on there and having all of those chats between the two of them. While in person, she would be with Gail. It just would be as a friendship, and that relationship wouldn't be public. However, the parents knew of Gail, and then the parents knew of Chloe, just as friends, obviously. Now, from what I gathered, Chloe never brought Gail to her house. Again, just from the background, I don't really think that she was in great relationship with her parents, and she would also tell Gail that, you know, she was kind of craving for the middle-class upbringing that Gail had had, but the other way around would happen. Like, Chloe would meet the Newland family, she would meet Gail's parents. And according to the articles, even when Chloe would have any issues with her landlord, Gail's dad would speak to the landlord on Chloe's behalf, like, basically pretending to be her own dad. So the parents actually liked Chloe. They accepted it, and by most accounts, they didn't actually know that the girls were dating. They just thought, you know, they were friends at that point. Gail, in her account of events, won't really point out, at least from what I have read, when this relationship turned sexual. Like, how long did they wait, or anything like that. And I think that was done for a reason, as it would be done for a reason in Chloe's account of events, and that is to show that everything, you know, was flowing as natural as humanly possible, even though it is still very much bizarre. 
because she would tell the courts that she didn't know what to do when the relationship was to turn sexual, because she was a virgin, and because of that, Chloe was the one to suggest that she buys, Gail, buys a prosthetic penis. From everything I have read online, you know, this is described as a pink dildo in court, the only way I can picture this is as a strap, just from what they actually would go on to describe when it came to this relationship. So, apparently, Chloe convinces Gail to buy this strap, or just a pink dildo, whatever you want to refer it to, and this will be proven that it was bought by Gail in court, which doesn't really go into her favor in context, but if this is the truth, then, again, I suppose that would be able to either be proven by text messages or somebody's witness testimony. One of the two of them could testify to that. So, they agreed to conduct the sexual part of their relationship as Chloe and Kai. And Gail's justification of that was that this is because both of them still struggled with their sexuality. That they were two stupid girls experimenting. It felt easier, and it was a bit of fun. It kept things exciting. A bigger reason for Chloe is that she had told everyone she was in a relationship with a man, and for whatever reason, that was a big thing. Beyond the sex toy, what Gail would also admit to in the first police statement was that the two of them would use a blindfold, rather that Chloe would have a blindfold on at times, and then at times it would slip up or they would take it off. So that would lead us to the supposition that Chloe would know that she is sleeping with Gail. However, then, in court, she said the complete opposite. She said that there was never a blindfold. Gail said that she lied in her initial statement to the police in order to allow Chloe a way out. She didn't want her friend to be portrayed as a complete fantasist, and she never believed that Chloe would actually bring this to trial, because, of course, according to Gail, everything that Chloe had brought forward would be an absolute lie. This relationship would have always been consensual, and Chloe, according to Gail, would have always known who she's sleeping with, and would have always known that this guy is the fictional persona that they're using on the side in order for Chloe to feel better, in order for Chloe to feel that she is in the more societally appropriate relationship, a heterosexual one. So, she would say at trial that she was still in love with Chloe, and she didn't want her portrayed as a total fantasist. She never for one second thought that this would go to court, and she especially never thought she'd come to court and look her in the eye and say the things that she did. The second that Chloe decided to do that, everything had changed. And according to Gail, she had never once lied in court. To further drive this point of this relationship being real and it being so obvious that Kai was the fake persona, in court it would be brought up that Gail was friends with Chloe on Facebook, but also Kai was. And, you know, if you had those two profiles side by side, it was clear that Gail didn't differentiate herself from Kai. The birthdays would be the same. They would both have chick flicks and R&B music under their, you know, liked pages. Both had OCD. Both had a dog that was called Gypsy. 
Gail would also say that when they talked on the phone that she used when she was Kai, you know, in order for those pretenses of a heterosexual relationship to be true, that she never even made an attempt to hide her voice. So not only would it be impossible for Chloe to ever get herself confused, even, you know, after this was set up in a very consensual way, but rather the two of them would have spent at least 100 hours just hanging out together, going for drives, sunbathing, even watching films together. So I suppose this was just like excluding the sexual part of the relationship. And it's very hard to buy for so many people, and I'm gonna admit myself at certain points, that during all of those times, Chloe would be having a blindfold on, that it would never sleep up, there would never be an urge for her to take it off to actually see who she's with. That brings us to the final moments of this relationship. So the timeline here is, in Gail's perspective, she meets Chloe in Gender Blender. The two of them meet up, the relationship begins, it is consensual from the beginning. However, Kai is introduced immediately. You know, Chloe is told about this persona straight away during that night out. She knows of him, and, you know, then when Kai sends the friend request, Chloe is aware that Kai is this fake persona, and it has been created because Gail is uncomfortable with her sexuality. So, the relationship proceeds, it turns sexual, they spend insane amounts of time together, and... It is unbelievable, according to Gail, that her friend would bring her to court for this, because in her mind, well, everything was out in the open, and this relationship was as consensual as it could be. Now, in this relationship, this blindfold and the way that sexual relationship was conducted will be where this next point leads. Because the whole accusation that Chloe would make was that during one of the encounters, as the two of them were engaged in a sexual act, she would have her blindfold taken off. She finally was, like, super suspicious. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. Like, something went off, and she was sort of prompted to take that blindfold off, finally. And when she did, well, she realized that this is her friend Gail that is sitting on the bed with a strap on and she freaked out, she left that room, and, you know, there was CCTV footage about the two of them arguing on the streets. About this, Gail had to say, I don't believe anybody would wear a blindfold for the period she's saying, in the scenario she's saying. I don't believe anybody would not be able to tell the difference between a male and a female, and I don't feel anybody would not be able to tell that it was their best friend. And about the argument that the jury would see in that CCTV footage, Gail would say that that was because on that day they actually had a conversation. Rather, Gail just told her, you know, this is ridiculous, like we have been hiding this for so long, I'm going to tell my parents the truth. That, you know, the two of us aren't just best friends, but rather are dating. And that is why that argument ensued. So, you can see that CCTV footage now from two different angles. It could be supporting Gail's story, that this argument had ensued, that then, you know, both of them just stormed out to the flat, the two of them argued, and then went their separate ways. Because, of course, Chloe still wasn't comfortable with this relationship. 
and you know to point that out you could have that whole strap situation the blindfold that was used the fact that there was the whole fake persona still in between really the two of them the fact that basically Gail introduced Chloe to her parents, you know, she was accepted there, but the vice versa never happened. Like, there are points in this story that support Gail's account of events. Or you could see it as Chloe finally realizing that she has been sleeping with the person that she didn't think she was sleeping with, that she thought she was having a relationship with Kai while it was actually Gail all along. And what would be the strongest points in Gail's version of events would be all of the hours that they spent together. All of the receipts of, like, any text messages, any email exchanges, any Facebook messages between Gail and Chloe that we just don't have on the record. And even beyond that, if they could prove that they spent over 100 hours together, whether it is speaking on the phone, you know, watching movies, because, of course, that would then completely sort of contradict what Chloe would later say. But the weakest point for me in this story is this whole motivation for why that outburst had happened, why that had been caught on the CCTV camera, and what will come out of it. Because, A, why wouldn't Chloe just deny it? I'm not sure about anything about Chloe's childhood, we just don't have that information, but from what I read, I mean, she might not have had the best relationship with her parents. Why would she suddenly be so incensed by it? Why wouldn't she just deny it to her friends and family? Like, for me, the worst option, the worst escalation out of this is bringing this to court. I mean, it might have never even seen the light of day, like how many court cases never even reached a trial. But if it did, there are chances, even if her name is protected, that she is seen coming into court, leaving the court, you know, that she is just known as a person. Like, there are multiple chances for her identity to just be revealed, for somebody to leak an image, to leak a picture online, compared to her just not reporting this to anybody. We have limited amount of information on the record as to where this story goes the same day, so after the argument that was seen on CCTV footage. We have a couple of texts and email exchanges, though. So there will be a text that Chloe sent to Gail the evening of the argument that read, are you for real? You should be locked up for what you have done to me. You raped my life, my heart, my soul. No amount of counseling will make up for this. You're pure evil, Gail. You're sick. I only have one question. Why me? If I had not ripped off the mask, I would not have known the evil truth. And then Gail would reply via email. So, she would send a couple of emails that evening, and one of them would have a subject line explanation as best as I can right now. In the email body, she would say, I had to make up lies to cover up the initial lie. It turned from a seed into a tree. I felt guilty every day, but I knew you needed me. To me, these are the strongest points for Chloe, so against Gail's account of events, because, yes, the lie could be referring to 
the lie that they were telling, you know, Chloe's family about them being in a closeted same-sex relationship, or rather even Gail's family, because according to most sources, they didn't know that the two of them were dating either, or it could be the lie that Chloe has been told this whole time, where she didn't really know Kai's real identity. But only one story here makes a lot more sense. Now, this is where the suicide attempt also takes place. I am not sure at which point during this day, like, did the text come first or did the suicide attempt come first? It's all very jumbled up. But here, Gail tried to throw herself from a canal bridge. Luckily, she survived and she only had a broken leg out of this. And when the emergency services, when the paramedics would be called to the scene, they immediately went to attend to Gail to try to prevent her from hypothermia. And they noticed that she was wearing both a woolen hat and a swimming costume. And Gail would here tell the police officer, I have done something I shouldn't, and now my friend can't forgive me. Again, questions, why call her a friend? We will speak now about Gail's version of events, so that swimming suit might actually make more sense to you as to why she might have been wearing it on the day, if this suicide attempt did indeed happen on the same day, which from most sources I believe it did, I just don't know the sequence of events, as to like, you know, did the emails and the text exchange come before, or did she attempt to commit suicide before, and then, you know, because she survived, this is where the emails and the text messages come into play. In Gail's timeline now, the person that she had called friend with the paramedics, but that she wanted to actually come out with being in a relationship with to her parents, has now accused her of sexual assault that will eventually bring to the charges and to the trial. So, let us speak about Chloe's version of events. According to Chloe, the two of them, Gail and Chloe, never met in Gender Blender. They would meet in person, but it would be later. So, that meet at a gay club never happened. Chloe would always say that she was heterosexual, that she was straight, but she wasn't homophobic, like, she would have just come clean if she was ever to actually have a girlfriend, you know, be bi, be interested in women, but she just wasn't, so this just was purely not true. Rather, she said that Kai sent her a friend request on Facebook, and that is where they started chatting, she thought he was quite handsome. And in a couple of months here, again, I don't know exactly when this happened, but they even got engaged. However, they got engaged before they ever met in real life. So, Chloe and Kai would not meet up in person for over a year. And it is during that year that Kai would offload all of the issues as to why they couldn't meet up. So, it started off with a car accident. Apparently, this was a disfiguring car accident that obviously affected Kai's confidence, how he acted in public, and that is why they at first didn't want to meet up with Chloe, even though Kai actually attended the same university. So, he told her he was at Chester University as well, and Chloe was quite desperate, you know, to meet this boyfriend of hers that was, at this point, just an online relationship. In the aftermath of this car crash that disfigured him, Kai also told her that the doctors discovered he had a brain tumor. 
Now, this would have been spaced out. So, after a couple of months of speaking online and again on the phone, where Chloe would think that this person had a really high-pitched voice but wouldn't really make any connection. They would be becoming closer and closer. Eventually, the brain tumor also developed into a heart condition. Meaning that now Kai also had to wear this nozzle that was attached to his heart. So, his chest would be bandaged. And he also had to wear a compression-style suit in order to regulate his heartbeat. So, sort of maybe like a swimming suit or something similar to make somebody buy into all of these conditions. In court, Chloe would say about believing Kai on all of those fronts that she was a pathetic and naive idiot who had the worst judgment in everything. But if you truly think about this, I don't believe that Gail would have offloaded, if this version of events is true, would have offloaded all of these conditions just sort of like one day after the other. It would have probably happened across some time to make it more and more believable. And then, just like in the stories of all of the witnesses that testified in court, well, you have to think, like, I'm not going to be pressuring this person. And when you think about Chloe's background, she was in an abusive relationship. She's now having somebody who loves her, who feels for her, who is comfortable enough to tell her about all of these conditions. She's not just going to, you know, try to make this person distressed, try to react in a different way. She now has a happy relationship from her own perspective. She might have been, yes, desperate for love to find something like this, but now she has it. So, she doesn't want to ruin it. She doesn't want to rush it until this person is comfortable themselves. And here is where, if this version of events is true, you can also see how Kai, rather Gale, does this in such a critical way yet again. Remember with the witnesses when I told you that there's always a moment where they kind of make you believe, like, you know, you're still special, like, look, you, there's a dog, like, you have met my dog, like, how come that I'm then not real? Because you would never even suspect something like this. So, in Chloe's story, this wouldn't be through Gypsy. Rather, Kai would end up introducing Chloe to Gale. Soon enough, Gail and Chloe became friends online, on Facebook. The two of them would end up meeting in a library, so not at the Gender Bender Club, rather inside of a library, and they discovered they had a ton in common. So, Chloe would say they would do things together. They would spend time together as the two of them, as friends who Kai introduced to one another. They would go to a concert together, watch films, play netball, hang out. And the thing that she liked most about Gail was that Kai trusted her totally. So, you can see that from, again, Gail's perspective of, like, well, this was clearly a consensual relationship. And Kai was, yes, this online persona, but Chloe knew about him completely. But you can also see this as a clear pattern of behavior where this is yet another person that has been introduced to a real-life character. In this case, it isn't a pet, but it's even better. It is the best friend. So, of course, then, you know, you can imagine how that dynamic would work. Now, Chloe would be going to Gail, speaking about the relationship with Kai, 
Now Gail would be like, oh my god, I mean, this sounds amazing, you know, like, she'd be probably hyping it up, or if there were any issues, you know, Chloe complaining about how they're not meeting up, again, Gail is there to pacify that. There's so many catfishing stories that happen this way that that is probably why I'm kind of biased in that way towards this story, but also from Gail's own mind, if she is the instigator here, if she is really the perpetrator, this is a perfect plotline to introduce somebody in between, to make this story more credible. Like, I will definitely be here, I will definitely meet up with you, look, I introduced you to my best friend, like, this relationship is definitely legit. So you kind of neglect, you know, the fact that you haven't actually seen them yet, the fact that you haven't actually met them online, the fact that you are engaged with the online persona, and also then you have an intermediary who knows exactly what's going on, you know, exactly what is troubling them, so that you, as this fake persona, as Kai, can then react, and can then make this person doubt you less. It's just a win-win if we're saying that Gail is perpetrator, and that this story is correct. It is win-win for her. If we are to trust Chloe's version of events, this manipulation is just sickening. Because something that really isn't spelled out is that, yes, with that introduction, it is kind of macabre, like, if you are thinking about Gail being the instigator, but really it goes even beyond that. Because if Gail is truly Chloe's friend, if she is acting as a friend, you can only suspect that she also might have known of her emotional abuse before, of her, you know, actual abuse, the domestic violence in her previous relationship. And yet, she's then manipulating her, both by pretending to be her friend while knowing that she's Kai, while knowing that she's also in this fake relationship with her. And in the aftermath of the crash, as we know, there was the brain tumor. And the person behind that Facebook profile, Kai, was always too sick to meet up in person. So, the way that beyond Gail, he would justify that, is that, you know, he would always tell Chloe how helpful she had been throughout this whole illness, how helpful it has been just even talking to her. So, just trying to relate you more to Chloe and why she would have possibly actually justified this to herself, why this actually might have been true, because Kai would be telling her it was a sign they should get married, they should have kids, they were going to do all sorts of things once he recovers, once they actually meet up. And then eventually, they did. So, all of those doubts, according to Chloe, would have soon been crushed. However, this is when the rules come in. The rules that Chloe had to comply with in order to meet up with Kai. The stipulation would be that Chloe had to be blindfolded at all times in Kai's presence. And submitting to that one and only stipulation, Chloe and Kai would eventually meet up at a hotel in Chester. 
Now, before we continue with this story and speak about why Chloe might have bought into all of these body consciousness issues that Kai would have had, and that being the premise for her to be wearing blindfold at all times, you might have wondered throughout this story as to why would somebody really submit to this? Why, against all of the red flags, like all of the doubts that might have popped up in Chloe's mind, she will actually admit to court were happening when it came to high-pitched voice, you know, that was then explained by, like, all of these different treatments, where, you know, maybe she would have seen the dog Gypsy, that is also the account in some events, that, you know, the dog was seen on Gail's profile, and then also on Kai's, and, you know, Kai would just be like, well, yeah, that's my friend Gail's dog that just hangs out with me, but she doesn't because I'm body conscious. All of that, like, all of the red flags, why she might have actually ignored them. And here, this story reminded me of two things. One is the Sweet Bobby podcast. If you haven't listened to it, <laughs> listen to it, please. I actually made the person that suggested this case to me. By the way, Terry, legend. For, follow Terry on Twitter. Terry, make yourself known on Twitter if you want to. I haven't asked her for the permission to actually include her handle here, so if you want people to follow me on Twitter, post your Twitter handle in the comments. She actually suggested me this case. I was like, what is this? is going on. I have actually heard about this case on Red Handed Podcast a while ago and have always felt about it the way that I do today. However, I haven't heard from it since and I completely like kind of forgot about it and then Terry brought it to my attention again. And when I was researching it, I really got reminded about Sweet Bobby podcast because this is a podcast of a real case where a woman has been catfished for, I think in that case it was like six, seven years where, again, she hasn't seen this person ever, and it was all of this emotional blackmail, all of the conditions that might have then prevented them from seeing them, but also that made them feel like shit if they were to, you know, ever actually say something or break up with them. All of that mesh, and, like, I basically told her to, like, listen to it, because it's such a messed up podcast, you should all really listen to it. It reminded me of this case, and, you know, after you listen to so many, I don't know, catfish episodes, just even if it is the MTV TV show, or just know all of these other cases, you can really actually more and more buy into Chloe's version of events. I'll be the first to admit that I have some bias when it comes to this story. But then, if you can't even relate to it from that point where, I don't know, you have the knowledge of all of these other stories, or you think, this would never be me, this could never happen to me, let me level with you. Have you heard of the boiling frog analogy? So, let's think of a, you know, simple example that might have happened to you on some level. So, the boiling frog analogy is the presumption that, you know, if you were to put a frog in a pot of boiling water, the frog would immediately jump out. But if you were to put it in, like, cold water and then slowly, slowly, slowly warm that water up, the frog wouldn't realize and would eventually be cooked to death. So, here the analogy is that this happens to people when it comes slowly, when the change comes slowly, when you don't notice that you are being cooked to death, metaphorically yourself, in the situation that you are in. 
In Chloe's story, we aren't talking about a one-night stand where somebody just manipulated you to, I don't know, wear a blindfold because it could have been a kink, it could have been whatever. Like, it wasn't like that. It happened over time. It happened for over a year before they would meet. Usually, the boiling frog analogy is used to refer to, like, sinister threats that develop gradually rather than immediately. But I thought of something really innocent that I think is relatable to so many people, and that is forgetting of somebody's name. You meet them in a social setting, you meet them at work, and at some point, it's just too uncomfortable for you to even actually tell somebody that you don't know their name, because it's been now a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you chat with them, you do that awkward small talk every now and then, you know, where you're just like, hey, you, and you just hope that somebody is going to come across and call them by their name so that you actually freaking remember it on this occasion. But then something happens where, you know, you have to work on a project with them. You, I don't know, are going on a date with them after knowing them for that many times, for that many weeks, and then you kind of need to know the name for that particular purpose. And then how do you go about it? Do you ask somebody? Because then they're gonna look at you like, well, what the fuck, we thought you were, like, best friends. Like, you're going on a date with them, you're working on a project together, what do you mean you still don't know their name? And you can't ask them, because then they are going to be super offended and look at you like you're a freaking dickhead. And now you have left that, you have been in that situation for way, way too long. That isn't really the boiling frog analogy, but it is on a lesser level something that has happened to so many people. And it is partially where this story goes. Because at first, Chloe and Kai would meet in Chester Hotel. Chloe would say, you know, she would be at the door of the room and then she would put a blindfold on and then kind of knock and would be let in. She did during the sexual intercourse that, according to most sources, happened over 10 times. So, at least it happened for 10 times. Some sources say 15. And sexual intercourse would sometimes happen at a hotel and then a lot of times it would happen at Chloe's house that we know she was renting, as in she was probably renting a room. Don't really have any further details on that. And during the intercourse, sometimes, you know, she would think maybe something is off, as in she never suspected it to be a strap, to be like an actual dildo that her friend Gail would be using, but she never really raised any questions. She never really asked. And you can think about a million reasons why. If you actually believe every part of this story as Chloe, you believe that this person has had all of these conditions. And now what? During the sexual intercourse with them, when you're actually in a loving relationship, not an abusive one, you're not going to do that the first thing. Be like, hey, by the way, something is off. You know, is this a real thing that you have, like, down there? Like, how would you go about that? How would you approach that? The same way that you probably wouldn't ask the person directly, hey, what's your name, after speaking with them for about a month every single day. Chloe would say about these meetups and her having the blindfold on, that every time she would meet up with Kai Fortune, she would either have the mask on already, or they would wait outside, let's say, if they were going to Chloe's location. They would wait outside the door and she would put it on. 
that she was so desperate to be loved, and it is pathetic, so desperate for love, so desperate. In court, Chloe would say when Kai would leave the flat, sometimes, you know, she would take the blindfold off and look through the window, even though, of course, that wasn't really approved by Kai, and she would see Gail getting into the car. But she just supposed, okay, the friend Gail is there to pick him up, and she is just in a passenger seat. Or when she was asked in court how did Kai, who was so weak, who was so debilitated by all of these illnesses, climb up the stairs to even go to your flat, she said, well, his friend Gail helped him out. So, kind of the lines really get blurrier and blurrier, and these are the main reasons why people really don't buy into Chloe's story. And then comes the bombshell at court. And that is that she admits to something that she hasn't admitted in the police interrogations throughout, you know, the whole investigation process. And that is that her hands have been tied behind her back at all times during these encounters with Kai. The reason for that, Chloe would say, is obvious. She believed Kai, she believed that he had all of these debilitating illnesses, and not just debilitating, but that he would wear hat during their meetups in order to hide the scarring that was there because of the operation that he had for the brain tumor. And then he had that bodysuit and the nozzle that was basically controlling, regulating rather, his heartbeat. So, of course, taking that into consideration, she didn't want to harm him, or rather Kai basically put that stipulation in place in order for that not to happen. So, during all of their meetups, she had to have her hands tied behind her back. Now, the question here is, why wasn't that information offered up straight away? Chloe responded to this, saying that she must have forgotten it because she was suffering with PTSD and depression. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't important if he did it once or twice. I don't remember little details. And then, you know, the defense lawyer says, but you said it was every time. So, as I pointed out, you know, the strongest and the weakest points in Gail's case, this one would be the strongest case for Gail that she would have in this version of events. Because Chloe also had suspicions, like all of the other witnesses that testified in court. You know, the same dog, Dog Gypsy, that was across both Facebook profiles. The voice that apparently was too high-pitched that she has suspected might have sounded like her friend Gail, that she also spent a lot of time with. But then, on one day in June of 2013, after the two of them have at least had sex for 10 plus times, something finally went wrong. For whatever reason, on 30th of June 2013, during their sexual intercourse, Kai requested for Chloe to lick it, referring to the dildo. So, here, if you believe Gail's story, then Chloe was privy to the information that this was a strap this whole time. Or, again, if you are believing into Chloe's account of events, which is where we are at right now, she did so, she proceeded to do so, and then immediately felt that something didn't feel right, referring to the testicles. 
And so in different sources, this is stated in a different ways, but in most sources it is said that Gail was sitting on the bed during this. And then at some point Chloe decides to remove the scarf that was tying her hands and then remove the blindfold and, I don't know, Gail doesn't notice, doesn't stop it, doesn't take the strap off. So Chloe is just encountered with her friend Gail having the strap on sitting on this bed. It isn't Kyle, it's Gail and the whole story just immediately goes to shambles. Chloe would say Gail was just standing there with this strap on and I just could not believe it. I just couldn't believe it. So Gail's response to this, according to Chloe, was that she said it's not what you think. I just used it this one time. To me, what I can't comprehend in this story, and it is probably the weakest case for Chloe, is didn't she say in court that her hands were tied behind her back constantly? So were they just not tied tight enough? Did Gail just not notice? Was Gail too brazen that she just thought, well, if she didn't buy that this was, you know, a fake sex toy, that this was basically a dildo where the balls wouldn't even be budging for over 10 times, why would she, you know, think that there's anything wrong with it now? I just can't comprehend this whole part, but for me, because of, you know, her hands being tied behind her back, according to Chloe at all times, this just doesn't make sense. Like, either Gail would have noticed and stopped it from happening, or wouldn't have, basically, said it that way, or maybe something just clicked in Chloe's head. Maybe something just actually clicked in her head, and she was like, fuck it, I just need to confirm this for myself. Then that argument ensued, and at this point, well, Gail is in the swimming suit with a hat on, with a strap on, and Chloe, I believe, was naked here, so she kind of, like, completely lost her plot, saying basically that she needs to get her clothes on and get out of the house, and Chloe was saying that she felt like there was a stranger who'd had sex with her inside of the house, to which Gail would say she's not going to hurt her, and then Chloe would say that she doesn't even know who she is, she's a psycho that messed her up. Now, this is where they had the CCTV footage of the two of them just arguing in the street once both of them got dressed. And they're either arguing because Gail just told her that, you know, she wants to come out to her family, if you believe Gail's side of events, or because Chloe just discovered that she was actually sleeping with a girl. As mentioned, we have the text between the two of them, the text from Chloe about Gail raping her life, her heart, her soul, that she's pure evil, why her, you know, if I had not ripped off the mask, I would not have known the evil truth, and then Gail responding via email with the explanation as best as I can right now, saying that she had made up lies to cover up the initial lie. This lie, as we have said, can be debated in two ways. It could be, you know, that Chloe is scared that Gail is going to expose the relationship to her parents, then, you know, her own might find out, the whole town might find out, and then on the other end, it can be that Chloe's version of events is that she didn't know that Gail was Kai. But the proportion of the reaction just doesn't make sense. As I mentioned, if it was about the exposure, well, why would Chloe then decide to report it, to expose it that way, to bring this to trial? 
But even beyond that, in that message exchange, Chloe is saying that Gail should be locked up, that she raped her. The rage just isn't proportionate to Gail just wanting to expose her. And what she's saying then doesn't match up Gail's response. And even when Chloe texts her about the mask and then Gail just doesn't really react, it is the lack of the reaction that confounds me here. Because in Gail's version of events, blindfold did sort of exist and then, you know, she would have taken it off. But then in trial, she was firm that, you know, the blindfold was never actually there and she just didn't want to expose her friend as a fantasist. This is why I'm telling you these stories in such a way, where it's like one point of view and then the second one. So we spot exactly the gaps and this is one huge gap which doesn't go into Gail's favor because why is she not reacting to the whole mask thing that Chloe mentions in her text? The exact sentence being, if I had not ripped off the mask, I would not have known the evil truth. It could be metaphorical and that could have been some sort of defense. But again, it doesn't make sense. If somebody was to text that to you and you are in your head sure this person, you know, has been having consensual sex with you, there has never been a blindfold of any sort, there has never been any sort of mask to impede that from happening to basically, for them to have a reason to ever say anything like this, wouldn't you be like, what the fuck, what are you saying, as your first reaction, rather than saying, oh, I have, you know, had the initial lie, and then I had to lie more to support that lie. Because in my head, that correspondence fully supports Chloe's account of events. In this timeline, we then have one of the few uncontested facts in this case, and that is the attempted suicide by Gail, because, of course, paramedics would have been called, so that would have been on the record. And, you know, the prosecution will be saying, well, this is her admitting guilt, whereas in Gail's defense, you can see that maybe, you know, this was the one real relationship that she had had, that then, you know, she hastily maybe wanted to come out to her parents, and Chloe reacted in such a way, and now that is never going to be a possibility. People will point out here the swimming suit that Gail would have been wearing during that suicide attempt. Like, why would she be wearing the swimming suit unless this was part of, you know, everything that she would be wearing when seeing Chloe during, you know, their sexual encounters. And also she would tell the officer on the scene when the paramedics were there, I have done something I shouldn't and now my friend can't forgive me. Why is she calling her friend? Why can't she even in those situations say girlfriend? Like, which one is it? It just doesn't seem like it's clear to any of these women after having had this relationship for, you know, over one year. And this is where the charges will be brought. It will be in total five charges of sexual assault. So, you can see the question here is the one of gender fraud and also consent. Chloe would, up until the end, claim that she was straight and that she thought that Gail was too. So, apparently, during all of those meetups, Gail never opened up about her sexuality. Gail, as we know, told a completely different story. Chloe would admit that she was gullible in order to have sex with someone who she had never seen in flesh, but she insisted she only consented to sleeping with a man, not a woman wearing a strap. 
So the five charges would be brought here surrounding the law of consent only, with the prosecution alleging that Chloe had not seen through her friend's disguise and would not have consented had she known the truth. So it is only if the jury finds that version of events to be true that they can then convict Gail. So the trial, the first trial rather, happened in 2015. And first, Gail would be charged with five accounts of assault by penetration. Section 74 of the Sexual Offenses Act in 2003 defines consent by a person consents for the purposes of this act if they agree by choice and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. So by lying about the gender, Gail deprived Chloe of this choice. And a lot of critics online, on forums, on Reddit, would say, well, isn't it Chloe's duty, as well, to remove the blindfold, to ensure that she knows who she is sleeping with? And this is truly the two different versions that will be presented at trial. So now that we know the two stories, the two different angles that will be presented at trial, let us just go over the main evidence, the main pieces of evidence, or rather the lack thereof, that will make the most impact. So first, let us talk about the defense team. Now, the defense team really tried to portray Chloe with that sort of perspective in mind where she should have known, you know, she should have figured it out, she's a grown-ass person, she was older than Gail, and she had previous relationship with multiple partners. Basically, they were saying she should know what the real penis and the real balls should feel like. And even beyond that, she hung out with Gail, as Gail, in person, that, you know, the two of them befriended each other, and then, you know, in the bedroom, she would have been able to basically notice, based off of the smell, based of how they walk, based of how they behave, she should have been able to feel that she's in the presence of a woman, of her friend, not just any woman, but, like, of a friend that she had also befriended and known, known her mannerisms, known how they behave, known the sense of smell, everything. And to that, like, I understand that, like, I think this is why this story is so unbelievable to so many people, but when I kind of stopped, paused, and thought about this, yes, I know, like, you know, like, my friends and stuff, like, when they walk towards me, even though my eyesight is quite poor and I'm not wearing glasses, like, I know just by the way of walking, like, how, you know, they behave, like, even after some time how they walk behind you, you just know, okay, oh, this is this person. But in all of those instances, I have had the visual first, like, for probably substantial amount of time before, you know, you hone in on all of those things. And here, if we believe Chloe's story, she never had that. She never saw Kai in flesh for her to then be like, okay, cool, yeah, this is, you know, typical Kai behavior. Beyond the human presence, they would also have the dildo, they would also have the strap-on in court. And according to people who were present, it's just, you can almost smell the rubber. Like, it was huge, like, the lawyers really wanted this done discreetly, but it just was impossible. It was a pink dildo, it was just on the table, it was large and thick with the testicles that didn't move. So, you know, once people then had that image in their mind, the story that Chloe was presenting kind of became more and more 
unrealistic and rather, you know, this will be some points for the defense team. To counteract that, what the prosecution would later say was that for all the times that Kai and Chloe would be engaging in sexual intercourse, Chloe was penetrated with something that she didn't consent to be penetrated with. And this is why Gail is here. This is why Gail is charged, because of consent above everything else. The other facts that the defense team has pointed to were the similarities just in the profiles between these two individuals that, you know, other witnesses have spotted. Like the same birth date, the same dog, that even the accents and just voices were be similar. And then when they put Chloe on the stand came that bombshell of her hands being tied behind her back that whole time which she just didn't tell earlier, and all of the other murky stories where, you know, she would look out of the window and see Gail leave, or she would just sometimes think that, I don't know, Gail was always the person dropping Kai off, it would just get blurrier and blurrier as this trial was to be going ahead. And it made Gail look like this was always consensual. So, the jury would also hear about Gail's reasons. Gail admitted she created the alter ego when she was 15 years old, using it to befriend other women, that she had anxiety issues, and that she used an alias to make it easier to forge virtual relationships on social media. She would say the two of them met at a gay club, and it was Chloe's idea to basically reintroduce Kai in this relationship as well, in order for her to be seen as having a relationship with a man, because that would make it believable. She told the court that she did not strap bandages to her chest or wear a swimsuit and a woolen hat in order to hide her experience, and that there were hundreds of hours that the two of them have spent in each other's company with no blindfold where Chloe had consented to this relationship. Now, going on to the prosecution's account of events, they would hear about the history, about Kai Fortune and his history online, about how this had been happening for years. They would hear the stories from three other women, three other witnesses, and how, you know, this is somebody who is used to disguise online and engage in roleplay when struggling with her sexuality. The prosecution team would really put the emphasis on all of the emotional dependence and all the damage that Gail had done to Chloe. And to really drive that point across, they pointed out to the message exchange between not Kai and Chloe, but rather Kai's invented brother, Miles, and Chloe. So this would happen after, you know, the introduction of the best friend, after introduction of all of these illnesses, that Miles would, whenever Chloe would, you know, complain about the bizarre conditions to Kai and how, you know, they're not meeting up, why they're not meeting up, whenever she would express any doubts, then this brother, Miles, would come in saying that Kai had collapsed and that all this arguing isn't good for him. And then we have that later, you know, reinforced because when everything is good, and when Chloe is believing this story, then Kai is saying how well he's doing now, how she's helping him with his recovery. So, it's all of that emotional baggage. And if they had had the receipts here, which I have to assume that they had, right? Lawyers, anybody? 
privy to any sort of, you know, legal system, ins and outs here in the UK, they must have had the messages to support this here. And that's something that I haven't heard mentioned, because if there are all these messages between Kai and Chloe, even if Gail's story is correct, and, you know, Kai has been always there for these chats with, like, you know, the heterosexual men, then why would there need to be all these lies? Why would all of this emotional pull need to happen? Why would Kai need to have tumor, need to have, like, all of these illnesses? Why would there need to be a message exchange with his brother? Why would all of these things need to happen if this is just like, oh, a happy, supposed heterosexual relationship for both of them to feel more comfortable with themselves, then why is there, you know, a proof of the history of all of this? Like, how does that fit Gail's account of events? About this, Chloe would say, people get raped by males, and it sounds sick, but I think I'd prefer it. I just think of all the stuff I let her do to me, like foreplay, and it makes me feel sick. And really here, the prosecution was trying to drive the narrative of how these restrictions were both mental and physical. The restrictions of consent, the restrictions of the information that Chloe was privy to. Firstly, there was the actual physical disguise of the head, the swimming suit, the strap, but then also it went beyond that, because, you know, the hands had to be tied behind Chloe's back at all times for her not to realize the scam. And that came with all of the emotional baggage, because in order to justify that, in order to really go ahead with this hoax, that had to happen. And in order for that to happen, all of the illnesses had to happen, all of the emotional damage, all of the psychological damage for months and months on end, introduction of Gail into this whole relationship had to have happened. So here you can see how now when we speak about the verdict and the controversies, the jury going into that deliberation room, yes, has two completely different angles, but one of them is just sinister beyond any point that they might have ever heard in their life, because it requires months, rather over a year, of premeditation, of just putting and aligning all of the pieces of the puzzle in such a way where it fits this person, where, you know, the best friend is introduced because maybe, yes, Chloe suspects and then looks out of the window, takes the blindfold off, and then it can be justified because Gail and Kai are friends. Because then when you ask somebody to tie their hands behind their back, well, you have to have a good reason for it. So, in 2015, the jury of eight women and four men would convict Gail Newland of three counts of sexual assault by penetration. So, she was cleared of two similar offenses because they had taken place in hotel in Chester, and the defense was able to prove that Gail didn't buy the prosthetic penis until after those encounters. So, in my mind, again, this just isn't spelled out, and it's pissing me the fuck off. Like, does that mean that they just engaged, I don't know, foreplay, that maybe, you know, they were familiarizing with each other? Like, why is that just not spelled out? Like, why don't we have all of those details? I know some of you are gonna say, like, why do we need them? But 
we need them. Like, we have too much on certain fronts and then too little on the others in this story. Once the jury brought a verdict, the judge was to decide on sentencing, and they have taken a variety of circumstances into account when making this sentencing. So, Gail was submitted to some psychiatric analysis, and those psychiatric reports would then be presented to the judge. So, he had said that what he had taken into the account were the various disorders that were highlighted in the report, including social anxiety disorder, personality disorder, depression, and OCD. The judge also said that there was a close link with her troubling issues of sexuality, that he had taken into account her history of low self-esteem and blurred gender lines. But the judge has also taken aggravating circumstances into the account, all of the damage that she had done to the victim, where she had had to move the area because of the fear of ridicule, because, obviously, even though her name is protected in the court of law, they do live in the small area where everybody probably knows exactly who Chloe is. So, because of that, because of the aggravating circumstances, the judge will sentence Gail to eight years in jail, so not like rehabilitation, not any psychiatric institution, rather prison, and also she would have to subject to a sexual harm prevention order. Basically, she would have to report regularly after release from jail and be a registered sex offender. Immediately, Gail's team of lawyers jumped onto the appeals, and when the appeal was lodged, there were a couple of bases, but the main one was that the judge in her first trial, in their summing up, had not been properly fair or balanced. So, his last line before sending the jury to deliberation was that the victim was successfully deceived into believing this was full sexual intercourse with a man and nothing less. Now, the successfully deceived part, of course, if you're going into deliberations, then that's in the back of your head. You immediately are like, well, the judge believes that she had been deceived, so the judge believes that Gail's version of events is correct. But also, the, you know, intercourse with a man and nothing less has the implications that lesbian sex is somehow lesser than heterosexual sex, and that the harsh sentencing might have been inflicted because of that, because she has been marginalized, because she has been victimized by the court as well. So, here, on that basis, they actually dug into the history, the appeals lawyer, and he has found out that the judge in the first trial had also given a four-year and eight-month sentence for somebody who raped 13-year-olds, and then a teacher who abused 24 boys in the 70s got six years and nine months by this judge, and Gail, as we know, got eight years. So, these judges' sentences came into question here, and why did Gail get so much more, even though he did have the psychiatric reports and he did have all of these mitigating circumstances? This meant that after having served 11 months in prison, Gail would end up being released. Well, rather, the charges would be overturned. And then, as the Court of Appeals granted her bail under certain conditions, Gail got out, and she found a job, she returned to work. But then, the second trial would come about, and during that trial, Gail would be found guilty again, she would receive 
um, lesser sentence, but during that trial, something else came to light. And that was that during her bail period, Gail, for the job where she has been working in a social media agency, actually defrauded the clients of $9,000. Here, what she had managed to do is to convince the employers that all of these paid-for blog posts, totaling, I believe, 10 of them, have been written by different people. Rather, it was all her, and all of the payments were linked to her own bank accounts. So, she basically profited out of all of them. Just like with Kai, creating all of these different personas successfully duping her own company. Which begs a question, again, why are we victim-blaming in this case when there's a clearer pattern of behavior of somebody who is able to dupe her employers until they all realized in the end when it was already too late because she has clearly defrauded them of 9,000 pounds. From what I've read in retrial, this charge of fraud has been added, but then it has been taken out, and the retrial jury was not told of the fraud conviction until they returned its verdicts, which I just get so angered by, because if there is a clear pattern of behavior, I believe the jury should be privy to it. Like, if, you know, you let somebody out on bail, and the first thing that they do is return to their own ways, I believe that should be heard, but you know. This new judge did review a psychological assessment of her various mental health conditions, though, as well, and here it came to light that Gail had had gender dysphoria as well, and she has been receiving medical treatment for it since her first trial. So, she was also found to be struggling with eating disorders, anxiety, OCD, and depression. Gender dysphoria is when a person experiences discomfort or distress because there's a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. But through both of the trials, Gail has identified as female, so that's why I am referring to her as, you know, she, her, rather than they, them. There was no reporting allowed during the second trial, so here we don't have much information. But what we know is that she will be found guilty again on three counts of assault by penetration after having sex with a partner who believed her to be a man. The judge here would sentence her to six years in prison for those three counts adding six months to be served for the fraud charges. So, apparently, here, the jury wasn't the one to decide on the fraud charges, rather, it was the judge. And the judge decided that, you know, eight years was too much because he has actually taken into the account all the psychological issues that had been put before the court. From what I know, Gail is still in prison and haven't seen any articles saying that she is out, if my math serves me right, she will be out in 2023, so, like, next year at some point. And at that point, she will be in her early 30s. And she is set to remain on the sex offenders register for the rest of her life. From what I read, she also isn't allowed to use the internet once she's out in order, again, to prevent her from defrauding somebody, whether it is you know, the employer that she is going to be working with, or whether it is a potential partner of hers. And that is the case of Gail Newland. 
Now, this isn't the end of the video because there are quite a few controversies online about this case and you could have probably guessed a lot of them as I was going through with this video. I will not spend too much time on this here, but I just wanted to mention a couple of them in order for you to see the bigger picture as to why this verdict might have actually been really controversial. So, the first thing that people point out online is whether or not there was the beyond reasonable doubt here. Whether there was enough information here for a trial to even take place. And if everything I have been telling you until this point is all of the information that we have on this case, and trust me, I dug every single freaking article that there was online, then the reasonable answer to that would be no. I also refuse to believe that there were no other texts, no other receipts, no phone calls. From what I've read, phone calls have also been played in court. So there's clearly information that has been presented to the jury, that has been presented in court, that we just don't have access to. So I would like to understand the, you know, logic behind it, because I think without certain evidence, the public would just never stay calm about this case. There will just always be ruminations, there will just always be that need to know and understand why such harsh sentence has been given here. So, speaking of sentences, I have looked into this and eight years of imprisonment isn't just, like, taken out of the thin air. That is, according to the guidelines, the recommended starting point for the offense of this type, the assault by penetration. So, it's not like, you know, the judge has given something that is not written anywhere, that is illegal, anything like that. It's more that the sentences are harsh, that the laws aren't changing often enough, that, for example, eight years is three years more than the maximum for inflicting grievous bodily harm without intent. So, if Gail, for example, you know, had beaten up Chloe and as a consequence, Chloe fell down, banged her head, and ended up paralyzed for life, she would not have received as much in jail. And also, we have to wonder why have the psychiatric reports been taken into account, but yet, you know, she hasn't been institutionalized, which a lot of people believe would have helped her more, me included. Like, let's try to fix the problem, even if it is, let's say, for eight years then, you know, follow the guidelines, let's place her somewhere where she can get enough help, and then when she's out, you don't even have to have the ban when it comes to, you know, her online use, because that would prove that maybe we have a solution to a problem, rather than placing somebody in prison, then they get out, and then you have to, you know, still have them on the sex offender list, you still have basically to have them forbidden from using the internet forever. Like, what is the purpose then? What is the purpose of the punishment then, if the person is still to be out in eight years and not being able to live, you know, their life to their fullest? Because that kind of defies the purpose in my eyes, the purpose of rehabilitation. I don't know, just a wild concept that a lot of people agree with online. When people online debate about this case, most of the people debate was there even the basis for it to go to trial, because CPS refers to this one as gender fraud. 
but there is no official gender fraud law in the UK. Rather, it falls under two sections, Section 74 and Section 76 of the Sexual Offences Act. The 74 being about if the person agrees by choice to the penetration and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice, and then 76 being about the defendant not reasonably believing that the complainant consented. And immediately when I tell you there's no official law, when I tell you that rather it's like two different stipulations in the Sexual Offenses Act, it goes much more beyond did Chloe even have the capacity to make the choice. So it branches out into quite a few issues, out of which I will only mention few. Usually, this case is clustered with a few similar cases from 2000s. One, the most famous one, is the case of Gemma Barker, Justine McNally, Christine Wilson. What all three of these cases have in common is that there was some form of disguise, there was some form of defrauding a person, usually a friend, and a form of sexual assault. Another thing that they had in common was that the defendants, the accused, got tops two to three years in prison, whereas Gail got eight and then it was reduced to six. What people smarter than me have pointed out as other patterns in these cases are that the defendants here were all between 17 and 25. Rather, because some of these cases actually happened in the early 2000s, since 2012, in the post-Seville environment, CPS now has kind of tightened the grip, where there are more prosecutions that are brought against the defendants that are young, but also have designated gender as female at birth, but now identify either as trans men or lesbians or queer. And the complainants are usually cisgender women. I've read this article by a professor of law at Keele University called Alex Sharp, and she points out all of these different issues surrounding this that I will put on the screen, and basically says this is sort of equated to now in the US when a white woman just accuses a black or Hispanic man of either rape or any sort of violent crime. It is kind of how it equates here in the UK for various different reasons, whether it is the overreach of criminal law, putting labels when we even just call it gender fraud, legal consistency, as we have seen, there's just no consistency when it comes to the charges because all of these different charges that on the surface look similar to you and me have ended up in different sentences for the defendants. Among all of the other points that she points out, a big one is non-disclosure of gender identity. Because under these laws, well rather, you know, the two stipulations under the Sexual Offenses Act, Non-disclosure of gender history can be seen as deception and a breach of Sexual Offenses Act, which would challenge the freedom and capacity of somebody to consent to sexual activity. You know, imagine if we are talking about transgender people, they're entitled to the private life, the personal choice of how much of their history they want to disclose. And even beyond the transgender community, you are not found to be doing anything illegal if you don't disclose the amount of money in your bank account when going into a relationship. You are not found to be doing anything illegal if you lie about the amount of partners that you have had before that person. Yet here, the huge ground 
and well, the only grounds for this case ever reaching the trial and the charges being made is gender fraud, meaning that the only bounds that there were for this to even go to trial is that Gail lied about her gender and that because of that, Chloe couldn't really consent, couldn't really provide full informed consent. So, to finalize the breakdown of the section 74 and 76 when applying it to this case only, because in my opinion, when you look at the bigger picture, you kind of start comparing it to the other cases, the legal framework is still not prepared because we shouldn't really be having these debates when it comes to people's lives and the sentencing of those people. So, they're still playing catch-up. However, it isn't even known which section of the Sexual Offenses Act Gale charges applied to, but Section 74 would outline consent being dependent on a sexual partner agreeing by choice, and them having the freedom and capacity to make that choice. And then the 76 outlines consenting to a specific act. And why both of those charges would apply in Gail's case was also because the sex would have been a completely different act from the one that Chloe thought it was, if we are looking at section 76. So, as for section 74, if Chloe was blindfolded and then just lied to over and over again, was she really free to consent to what was being put inside of her? Even though in this case this wasn't a real penis, in which case the threats would have been possibly STIs, possible pregnancy, so even though this was rather a dildo in vagina rather than penis in vagina, it isn't what both parties have consented to, and that would make it sexual assault. Chloe would say that her youth, her personality and vitality have been taken by the deceit. And in the words of Chloe's prosecutor, if you truly consent to something, you must be able to exercise an informed choice. In other words, you must know what you are letting yourself in for before you decide whether or not to consent to it. The bigger picture in this case cannot be ignored and shouldn't have been ignored even when it came to the sentencing. And do I personally believe that she should have gotten eight years in jail? No. As I mentioned, I would rather, you know, have rehabilitation work. Prove us how it works. Prove us how people actually come out and they don't reoffend. They can actually reintegrate into the society. But that just doesn't happen here. What I believe needs to happen is the laws need changing in order for us not to need to have this debate when it comes to gender fraud, you know, when it comes to the stipulations under Sexual Offenses Act, when it comes to it not being the actual law in itself, because then what it allows for is all of these arguments on non-disclosure, on differences in sentencing when it comes to marginalized communities, when it comes to, you know, who the defendant is versus who is then the person who is the complainant. It just allows for, like, all of these debates where there shouldn't be any. But what it mostly allows for is that you lose the view of the actual case. I have heard of this case on the Red Handed podcast. I think they have done it, like, a year or something ago. Then, you know, it has just slipped my mind, and then afterwards Terry has introduced it to me again. 
And I remember, because I have really listened to the Red Handed podcast, and ever since I first heard this case, and now even after diving deeper into the research on it, when you hear this true crime case for what it is, in my head there were never doubts of which story I believed more. There were just never any doubts. It always made me feel iffy for all of these other reasons when you look at the bigger picture. But what happens with people is when they, you know, just look at the bigger picture and the bigger issues surrounding the case, they stop looking at the case for what it really is. In Chloe's background, we have an abusive relationship that would have made her more susceptible to any kind of relationship in the future that isn't that. In Gail's background, we have a clear pattern of somebody being online, creating false identities in order to then chat with women. And this is something that that person has also admitted to in court. And then in the aftermath of events, we have Gail again going online, following a certain pattern of behavior and defrauding her employer. So, seeing a bigger picture sometimes eliminates people from seeing how those pieces of the puzzle fit in with the middle story and make them believe that the crucial part of the middle story, the core thing that we have discussed today, is unbelievable. Now, when you combine the background with the aftermath of this story, which one fits better in the middle for you? Because for me, there has always been one account that fits better, and that is Chloe's. Because you have to think about who has more to lose here, who has a bigger motive in this case, and who does the evidence in this case also support. And when people get lost in the bigger picture, that even when you think about it, it was always about the sentencing, it was always about the laws, rather than, you know, the actual case, rather than the actual crime in itself, people lose touch with the case in itself. People lose touch with all of the facts, and a lot of people online, you know, completely believe that Gail was innocent here. There were support groups, there were, you know, Facebook groups, and to you, I just ask you, to see it for what it is, to see the background that Gail had admitted to herself, to see, you know, the fraud charges, and to see, again, these two different views of the story, the way that I have presented it, which is, you know, Gail's story, Chloe's story, different points of view, and then tell me on its own, without, you know, the last timestamp that was about gender fraud, about sentencing, what is that you truly see, which story flows better for you. But that is the case of the day. Next week, we are finally going abroad again. I know I have been stuck in the UK for the past few cases. We are finally going abroad, and boy, if you thought this case is controversial, oh, the next next week we're gonna rage. We are gonna rage, we are gonna rage. And I don't know if you have heard about this case, but boy, it includes some of the most bizarre facts. And yes, I have just told you one of the most bizarre stories out there. But next week's one is full of rage. So make sure your notification bell is online. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you comment and engage and share this type of content elsewhere. And then we can debate civilized in a civilized way in the comments so that I don't have to remove them.
please, please share your opinions, but again, you know, make your arguments. Make your arguments based off of the information that you have had. Wow, okay, teacher Maya mode out because it's a Sunday and I need to like actually chill before going into a work week tomorrow. Do they care? Do they look like they care? Are they showing you the face like they care? They're clearly delusional. You can't see them. Oh god, don't you love the little monologue at the end of every single one of these? Bye god, bye now, bye. You keep talking to yourself but after the camera is switched on. I will. You think I won't? I will. Bye now, bye. Yeah, I can't